Welcome to HACCP Mentor, where it's all about helping you make your food business compliance easier. Sit back and relax as we get our food safety, HACCP and quality compliance on. Welcome back to Off the Menu with Peter Holtman and myself, Amanda. We've been speaking about the risk management series and ISO 31000 and basically trying to give you practical guidance on how to implement that particular uh, ISO standard. Pete, Hello. it's been a while. You? You're back. I am. How did you get this number? I told you stop calling me. So, <laughs> good one. Where have you been? You've, uh, you've... Everywhere. I've been around the world again doing risk management, um, Africa, Europe, America, Asia, the usual stuff people do. You're very popular, aren't you? Of course I am. That's why I'm doing this podcast. <laughs> Oh, I thought you just because you wanted to work with me. No, I told you to stop calling me. <laughs> what we want to look at today is um, implementing the risk management fra- uh, framework. So in previous episodes, we've given you an introduction to risk management. We've talked about the different components that make up a risk management framework, including probably the biggest and most important area is getting management commitment to be able to do any of this type of stuff getting the resources, allocating roles and authorities, responsibilities, all of that type of stuff, and then coming up with your communication and consultation strategies. So now we're going to start implementing. We've got all our paperwork. We've got all our policies, procedures, things like that. Um, So now it's time to implement. So how's that sound, Pete? We're going to go through that. Sounds good. It sounds good. So it's a, it's an important step, which is how do you how do you get the commitment of personnel to to implement everything you've been writing, all that good stuff, all that all that good material and intent and executive and uh, management commitment. How how do you now get people to to start to take it on board personally? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you can have. And think about this in the context of your food business. You can have all the policies and procedures in the world developed and documented, but if you don't actually go through and implement it, it's not worth the paper it's written on. If you don't do that, it's been a whole waste of time. So what we want to get through today is really looking at um, probably the best way to go through and implement, um, looking at the different components of implementation, planning, um, things like that. So yeah, let's let's call it sustainable practices because uh, putting any of these things in place, it needs to be, uh, well, as the as the term says, sustainable. It needs it needs to be able to live longer than just a, an initial kickoff meeting and a you know and a bunch of sandwiches with with a with a, a management or a steering committee. It's got to be something that lives lives long within the organisation and, and provides value to to the organisation and to the people using it. Yeah. So do we normally um, put together a implementation team or how would we kick off this whole process? How yeah. would you recommend that we kick it off? I think that's right. It's it's uh, very much a steering committee that comes together and talks about um, the, the phases or the stages that are involved in getting this in, which always starts with an education, which uh, uh, to coin or to use a phrase from Simon Sinek, which is start with why. So why are we doing this in the first place? 
and then how are we going to do it and then who's who's uh, going to be impacted by this implementation so that's the initial planning phase of the steering committee then it's so really... is that for is that for the steering committee or is that for the people on the floor who are going to be the ones doing it day to day well that's definitely for the steering committee it's 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 about it's about um, what's your method of delivery so the steering committee is really involved in in how you're going to deliver all of that stuff so what what's their what are they tasked with to to make sure that it's an effective rollout or an implementation so some companies do really well with a with like a let's call it a town hall meeting all staff gather and someone gets up there and talks about about all the goodness of risk management other companies like to broadcast it through their intranet or through email system it depends on on how the company works how how many branches it's got is it all on one campus or is it is it spread across the globe much like what i was talking about in the beginning amanda is um, some companies are, are multinationals multi-sites and so gathering people to talk about stuff just doesn't work so we've got to find the most effective method to to communicate that it's starting basically but it's, it's no longer a theory it's no longer just a bunch of people sitting in a room writing paper or writing stuff on paper i should say this is now about it, it it's rolling into people's day-to-day lives so this is where the steering committee really starts to come to life and and take ownership for the next stages okay and who should be on that steering committee well, initially, it's it's great to have uh, line managers that are there, and uh, so people that are responsible for specific uh, outcomes within the organisation. So it could be from manufacturing, could be from engineering and maintenance, definitely cleaning. People like customer service and even sales people are involved because, uh, as we all know, that sometimes these systems are put in uh, as a marketing requirement uh, in other words to demonstrate that they've got safe practices safe food or, or uh, secure food practices so people that are going to be using it to change their daily practice or to communicate to say customers about a change in daily practice would be on that steering committee okay so this for those who do HACCP within their organization this would closely could well it could closely align you have to have a HACCP team may use those same people um, but I think definitely if you've got uh, a GFSI certification or against a GFSI um, recognised standard there's also a lot of new requirements that have come through of late around this whole company culture and having a committee or a culture team set up for your organisation so I would suggest that that would be a good team to take this uh, kind of steering committee role on for risk management because really what you're doing around that company culture is it's exactly the same as what we're talking about in risk management it's just different terminology being used absolutely Uh, culture is a great one and HR should definitely be in and amongst this as well because it's normally HR these days is called people and culture and uh, if you've got a team that's uh, established for food safety culture there's no reason why that can't be expanded a little bit to to uh, people and culture within the organization because risk management practices goes across the whole business it's not just talking about the manufacture the the storage and the transportation of of say food it's it's everything within the business that uh, could impact 
the outcome of the organization. So let me give you a really quick example about, about why this is important. I was just working with a client and they just did a culture mapping exercise of their organization and the results came back that people felt a little bit disengaged or disenfranchised from the activities of the organization. They didn't feel like there was uh, sufficient room to, to grow and be promoted and that uh, a lot of the decisions were being held within a small small group of management people. So that tells you instantly that the, the any intention, so any strategy, any new process is really being driven from a small team but won't be adopted by the larger group of people. So that's yeah. where culture kicks in, which is for all best intentions and, and purposes that you want to put in a risk management system, but it's only going to get as far as the first line of management and that's about it. So we've got a problem we need to address at that point. So you could be wasting a lot of time and money trying to drive something into the business, but the culture won't support it. Yeah. So I think part of, you know, we've got this steering committee, we're going to um, go out and uh, educate line staff or floor production, all staff members around whatever it is we're trying to achieve, our strategy. Um, I can see where having, you know, if we want to get down to the nitty gritty of implementation, having some type of plan in place like you would for any type of project into your business is having some type of roadmap on who would, you know, what resources are needed, what time's needed to actually implement each of the or the overall strategy into the organisation. Is is there any particular mapping tools or implementation tools that you would recommend a business using for this process of planning? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people choose to use Gantt charts uh, to, to map out the process because it, it uh, succinctly maps uh, discrete activities or outcomes with with a calendarised time frame so people can, can see how many things are happening at once. So that would be the, the, the quickest and easiest tool. If you can plug it into Microsoft Excel. You can put it into Access. It can be a standalone project management. Who uses Ooh. Access anymore? Oh, I don't know. People Seriously? Accountants. Accountants use it. There you well. go. <laughs> Okay, everyone, make sure you've got an accountant on the Absolutely. implementation team just so you can use a <laughs> Gantt and Microsoft, Microsoft Access, Access software. There you go. For those of you who are a little bit more up in the world of software than Ooh, what clearly uh, Peter is, clearly what Peter is, <laughs> maybe you can, uh, if you do use Microsoft in your business, they do have uh, project management implementation yeah, tools, project, yeah, yeah. you can go go ahead and use. Um, I'll put a heap of different tools that you can you can try out, like online software um, that you may find helpful. I'll make sure I put those in the show notes. Yeah, um, and I think the to, key is don't, don't overcomplicate the process because the, the, the harder the tools are to use, the, the less efficient the process is and the more time it takes and the less likely the outcome is going to be assured. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sometimes even just on a whiteboard to say this is the date we want to – this is what we want to achieve, this is the date we want to achieve it by, and these are the people who are responsible for achieving 
that particular process. Absolutely. But I think one thing you need just to make sure you consider is the time that you do go through and allocate um, because that people tend to underestimate the time of implementation and how quick things happen because, you know, in this our world today, someone might be off sick for, for a week. They might be in quarantine for a week with COVID or, or whatever. So you just really need to to be a, probably a bit more flexible and not have such tight time frame. Well, um, that's a really interesting to a task. Yeah, it's an interesting topic around productivity in the workplace because that's changed a lot these days. And there's lots of papers that show the decline in productivity of employees in the workplace these days and the amount of productive hours per day they actually have because they're distracted by other things such as answering multitudes of channels of communication and social media and information. That's actually a a huge drain on their day. So don't think that people are dedicating four, six, seven, eight hours a day to complete your project because it just doesn't happen. Yeah. And look, when I'm quoting for projects, I always have the best intentions of getting it done within time uh, in what I've said, but it normally blows out one or two, three weeks. And it could be just something as simple as you're waiting for information to come back from somebody and if there's a day delay there, that's going to put a delay on your side of it. Um, so yeah, when you when you are allocating time, just make sure that you're just careful with that and a, a bit flexible. I'm not saying to blow it out further that nothing ever gets implemented. You definitely have to have a start and a stop time um, for people, you know, for your whole project and all your strategy to get implemented within the business. But the other thing is get as many people involved as possible. Absolutely. And and here's, here's why uh, uh, it's good to have multiple people. Not only it's a different viewpoint, but it's also the different levels of motivation to completion of the project. And it mightn't be their motivator. So let's let's look at it this way. It's your project. You, you're not only, not only motivated, but you're responsible for its outcome. So you're going to dedicate a good four to five hours a day every day on your project to get it done because that's what you're going to do. Someone that's uh, fairly motivated is probably going to give you maximum three hours per day to work on your project. Someone that's not really motivated, they're probably going to give you an hour per day to help deliver your project and then it drops away from there rapidly down to people will give you minutes per day to even think about your project. And that might just be a nod in the hallway as you're walking past them to say, I, I know you sent me an email and I haven't answered it yet as I run past <laughs> Three you. weeks ago. So it's important that you understand when you're allotting time in your uh, Gantt chart that you're accounting for the motivation for people to actually complete tasks. That you, don't, you can't expect that people are giving 100% of their time freely to your priority. They've got their own priorities and that drops off rapidly with the level of motivation for the project. Yeah, absolutely. So I, like I said, I, I see that quite often in organisations where some, you know, some people are fully motivated where others just they don't care. And it's mainly because they've got other competing priorities as well. It is, yeah. Because this is, is something extra that's been added to their, their work day, which they didn't anticipate. You may have as a steering committee, but they haven't. 
That's exactly, and they, they without tr- them truly understanding why it's important, they just won't buy into it. So that's why steering committee needs to spend a lot of time up front ensuring people are engaged with the project. So they know, oh, I'm, I'm up. Someone's tapped me on the shoulder. I've got to do something now. I know why I have to do it. I'll go get it done. It's finished, and I can get back to my day. So is that more really people? And we we have touched on this previously. People should be engaged from day one when we're we're talking about this whole developing the strategy, getting the, those people involved. But I suppose it's making sure that those people who are on the steering committee, who you said are going to be managers or people like that, supervisors, um, that they they actually have good management skills in that they can uh, communicate to their staff what this is all about and giving them the scope and the breadth and the time to be able to do what's now being asked of them. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's without without having that that uh, engagement right up front, these things are always doomed to failure. And, and another side of this is: Are you doing this in house by yourselves, or are you using a, a consultant to to assist you with this? This is where things can go wrong quite easily. Because look, me being a consultant in the field, I know that people can rely too heavily on us and not take ownership of the project. And if something goes wrong, it's just as easy to blame the consultant. Oh, they didn't do it right. They'll have to come back and fix it. So that's all something you need to weigh up is if you are going to engage a consultant, just what's the level of engagement you want them to have with you and your team and the steering committee? Yeah, and that's very important to understand, not just for risk management consultants, but food safety consultants. If you've got someone coming in, it is then not their job to make sure you get through the audit, if that's what your goal is, the yeah. business has to be responsible and take ownership. Yep. There's only so much a consultant to do. But when it comes to implementation, as I said before, you can have all the policies and procedures in the world written and um, developed and, and documented by a external party or a consultant but if you don't go and develop it, uh, sorry, go go in and implement it, it's it's been a useless time wasting, money wasting process. It is, and you know I've followed on from consultants in other in other areas and in other companies, and uh, people can end up with a really bad experience with with it, and therefore you know, you, you've got to break that down before you even begin your project. So. You know, consider consider how best a consultant, or not just a consultant, but any external provider can can best assist someone within the organisation who has commitment and responsibility to see this through. So, Peter, part of the implementation process, we may have to do some modifications um, for that process. Can you give me some examples of when that may be needed for us to do modifications to? Uh, whatever process that we're trying to put in place. So an external factor could be something like uh, the impact on supply chain to getting access to product or reliable supply of product from uh, your usual suppliers. So that that has a decided impact on how you're doing your business and what you're doing within your business. And, And for instance, as I have a client that has to buy in second grade quality product in order to make up their supply of material and then engineer out 
the outer specification issues that come with second grade products. So that's one example where it's impacting the risk plan. Internal factors can be things like um, the the hybridised work environment at the moment. So factories and and, uh, offices are still potentially working on a 3-2 pattern, three days on site, two days off site. Maybe not so much on the on the production side, but definitely on the fact on the um, on the office side and the admin side of things. So that has an impact on how uh, key issues are being communicated and key key uh, deliverables are being uh, achieved in the organisation as well. So they're two very quick, punchy examples of the types of things you should be considering when you're starting to roll these out. Okay, so yeah, that's great examples. So that. That can also happen not uh, not only in this implementing risk management strategy, but in anything that you do. And I'm sure that people who are certified, third party th- certified, have been seeing that. That yes, maybe you were doing things a certain way previously, but at the moment it has to have been adjusted, especially around your supply chain programs, who your suppliers are, who's approved, who's not approved, the quality, the the raw materials that you're getting in to make. So all of that can have an impact. So probably the lesson in that is to understand that you may always have to have modifications and this is where the system, I suppose, ends up being a living, breathing. It's not just something that sits on the shelf. You have to make amendments on the fly based on whatever's happening on, whether it be the day. For some people, it may be hour by hour. But yeah, risk is not static. Stretch of the imagination. Risk is something that risk is about how you respond to a change in your day to day practices. That's what risk really is. Risk isn't just our factory does the same thing every day, therefore we have no risk because we use the same people for the last thirty years, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Some places I go to, based on their culture, they have a high staff turnover, or they have a very high turnover during different seasons because they're using seasonal casual labour. All of that introduces risk. It's not just, oh, we just make one product on one line, therefore we don't have an issue. There are so many factors that push on the ability for you to deliver outcomes as you do every other day of the week and uh, with uh, quality, safety, health, environment, social and governance and corporate responsibility things in mind. There are so many things that push on it that risk is rarely, if ever, static. Yeah, and I think a lot of our listeners definitely who are in the food space are used to the whole HACCP thing, you know, that's been around forever. So they're only used to thinking about risk in the context of food safety and HACCP and critical control points as opposed to all the other things that actually push down on that ability to comply with your critical control points, as we said, around staffing, resources, behaviours. Yeah, all it takes is another COVID event and a factory has to downscale its its number of employees it's working. And the next thing you know, you've got industrial action at your site. Uh, It could be unionised, non-unionised. It doesn't really matter. But what you've got is a whole bunch of disgruntled employees and you're now raising the risk of threat to to the organisation and to product. And I've seen this very recently with a client I've been working with in Asia is that they've had a very long-serving employee that uh, uh, completed malicious product tamper because of a change in industrial conditions at the workplace. 
Oh, that's all you need on top of everything else, isn't it? It's, it's have, the simplest have the right employee. Yeah. Look, um, it's, it's like an hourglass, right? Uh, sand starts falling through with the first grain of sand and then it slowly oh, builds up. You, you, you took me back to uni there for a minute, Pete, oh, talking about the sand through the hourglass. That was days of our lives. So are the days of our lives. <laughs> 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 Sorry, I digress. Go yeah, on. Yeah. So that's yeah. So risk is an ever-changing concept, and it requires a different headspace to work in it. It's not a system as such; it's a way of thinking around what's impacting our ability to produce our outcomes. So, based on what you've just said there, then kind of circling back to our whole ensuring staff are, are well informed yeah. and that they clearly understand and and practice what has to happen. What are the best ways, because to me it sounds like education is a constant thing as well. It's not just, yep, we just train our people once a year as an annual refresher and that's it. What are some ways that you would suggest or what you've seen in the businesses that you've visited that they're doing or are they doing ongoing training that fits in line with these modifications that are happening day to day, week to week? What so, are some of the communication of, of education are they doing? Yeah, it's really important. And we've been talking about it, which is the culture uh, that goes with this. And th- what's going to kill these things as fast as anything is by calling it a new system or a new procedure or a new, a new um, uh, process to it because it's none of those things. This is about how it should be talked about. This is how we're going to do business going forward because that talks about behaviours and Behaviours is what controls businesses' uh, ability to determine uh, consistent, reliable outcomes. A system doesn't do that. A system just records it and looks back on what you've done. We've got to remember that people actually do the work and actually deliver the outcome. So the very first thing we've got to tell people is we're changing the way we do business and we're changing the way we do business by helping you to think differently about our business. And when you start that type of conversation, it's a never-ending conversation if you get logistics. You can always add something to that about, well, guess what, the conditions have changed. Guess what, COVID's here. Guess what, global supply is being impacted. Guess what, seasonal market uh, uh, labour force isn't what it used to be, et cetera, et cetera. The conversation continues. So it's about changing how you approach this in the organisation. It's not just another system like an environmental management system or a workplace health safety. This is a behavioural shift that you're trying to uh, engage with. Okay, so back to my original question. Yeah. Examples of how how would people do the education? Is it as simple as having a toolbox talk to say, okay, well, today there's a change? Um, or does it have to be a more structured written, tailored training program. Look, I don't, I don't think it needs to, to go to that, to that level. I think uh, we're, because we're talking about behaviours, this is about putting the conversation back with the individual. So a, a toolbox-type conversation works about what are we facing today and, and, and how are we going to go about it to deliver the outcomes. But it really should be coming – it shouldn't be directed and, and uh, let's say, uh, narrated by – line managers or frontline leaders, the conversation should be coming from the people that are actually doing doing the, like delivering the product, delivering the outcomes. 
because that's where the behavioural change needs to stick the most. Um, but then it's also about being very open and honest and having conversations about problems that are being faced and then what are ways of solving the problem. You don't just want to leave uh, a problem with, uh, with a group of workers or whatever and then walk away from it. That's not what it's about. Really good leadership is about defining the problem and then seeking group consensus on the on the right solution to it. It could be, just like we said, hey, we're seeing a spike in um, non-conformances uh, around this or a, a breach of um, critical limits around this CCP. What do you think is going on and how do you think we're going to solve it? That's what it's about. So you see it's, it's changing the behaviours. It's not about the worker coming and saying, oh, this keeps happening. What are you going to do about it? I need more money to, to fix the problem. It's turning the conversation around. So these are ways of, of addressing this. It could be a toolbox talk. It could be it could be a line meeting. It could be an end of shift catch up. It could be a flash meeting, you know, like, hey, this keeps happening and we can't allow it to continue. So let's quickly meet and, and discuss how to solve the problem. Okay. Sorry, I just had visions of a, like flash mob dancing on a production floor then. Hey, if that works. When you said that. If that works, go for that. Absolutely. <laughs> So that really starts bringing us now into our the next topic that we're going to talk about in the next episode is evaluating our risk management framework and yeah. seeing whether it is effective and then looking at, okay, well, what do we need to make or bring it back on track if it's, if it's not performing the way that we need it to perform. So I think on that note, we'll wrap up this episode, Pete. Yep. Thank you again for your insights, knowledge, intellect, Blah blah blah. Well, that's enough of that. And we'll. <laughs> I'm going to uh, give you a call because I've still got your number, yeah. and yeah. we're going to go through and do the next episode on evaluating. So yeah. thanks very much for listening in today, and yeah. we'll see thanks you next time. We'll catch you next time. You've been listening to Hassop Mentor. For all your food business, HACCP, quality and food safety compliance tools, check out our website at www.hassopmentor.com. You can also find all the links and resources mentioned in the show notes to this episode.